This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. often write about counterfeit worlds, semi-real worlds, as well as deranged private worlds, inhabited often by just one person, while meantime the other characters either remain in their own worlds throughout or are somehow drawn into one of the peculiar ones. This theme occurs in the corpus of my 27 years of writing. At no time did I have a theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo-worlds. But now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one which the majority of us by consensus gentium agree on. Although originally I presumed that the differences between these worlds was caused entirely by the subjectivity of the various human viewpoints, it did not take me long to open the question as to whether it might not be more than that, that in fact plural realities did exist superimposed onto one another like so many film transparencies. What I still do not grasp, however, is how one reality out of the many becomes actualized in contradistinction to the others. Although originally I presumed that the differences between these worlds was caused entirely by the subjectivity of the various human viewpoints, It did not take me long to open the question as to whether it might not be more than that, that in fact plural realities did exist superimposed onto one another like so many film transparencies. What I still do not grasp, however, is how one reality out of the many becomes actualized in contradistinction to the others. Perhaps none does, or perhaps again it hangs on an agreement in viewpoint by a sufficiency of people More likely the matrix world, the one with the true core of being, is determined by the programmer. He or it articulates, prints out, so to speak, the matrix choice and fuses it with actual substance. The core or essence of reality, that which receives or attains it, and to what degree, that is within the purview of the programmer. That was Philip K. Dick speaking in Metz, France in 1977. Man, outstanding stuff. Insane that he was on about all of that in the 70s. Philip was a man that seems to have been born at least 50 years too soon. As someone commented in regards to this video online, quote, when you're one step ahead of the crowd, you're a visionary. 
when you're two steps ahead, you're considered insane, end quote. That can come as an accusation from the outside, or it can come as a feeling from the inside, feeling out of step with the world because somehow you are able to see above the fray, peeling back the somnambulistic layers to reveal the core essence of what this reality may actually consist of. Today's guest, Tessa B. Dick, was the last wife of Philip K. Dick, who had a son with him and helped him with many of the books for which he would later become famous for. She has written many books on her own, including many about her time with Phil. Hunter and I recently had the honor of having a chat with Tessa, and this is what ensued. Hello. Tessa. Yep. How are you? I've been better, been worse. (laughs) (laughs) This is Chris, just in case. I mean, I guess I should formally introduce myself. Chris from The Melt and my wife, Hunter. Hi. Hi. I'm so thrilled to meet you, um, albeit via the phone. I was uh, wondering how your kitties are. Oh, they're busy chasing an automated uh, laser pointer. <laughs> automated? I've never, yeah. heard, I've never heard of that before. A friend gave me this gadget. It's battery powered and it you know, it saves me a lot of carpal tunnel. Oh, that's good. <laughs> because they have a lot of stamina, they can they can do that for a long time. Chase the light. Oh yeah. 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 And there's three of them at the moment going after it. You you still have Torah? Oh yeah. And she doesn't like having all these intruder cats in her house. Oh, I bet. I bet. I didn't go and get them. They just moved in. (laughs) They'll do that. Did you put out food? Was food drawing them in, or is it just your good vibes? No, a feral cat had kittens under my house. Uh And the cat disappeared. Gotcha. They, They were probably weaned when she disappeared. Mm. Well, that's good at least. Well, you know, they smelled food and came right in. <laughs> I bet. Opportunists. My my best friend lives in Compton, and she uh, drives around and has a whole series of ferals that she takes care of and has been able to catch a couple and have them neutered and spayed and then puts them back out but she's been able to adopt out 32 cats so far so wow yeah i mean there's a huge problem with feral cats in in los angeles oh yeah we had a big problem but then animal control started trapping them that's probably what happened to Mama Cat. Mm. Anyway, um, I did uh, connect with a local cat charity, and they got them all spayed. Oh, good. 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 Yeah. yeah. How's the weather? Cold and windy. Are you ready for it? I'm never ready for the <laughs> devil wind. <laughs> Do you have a, a fairly airtight house? 
It's a little drafty, and I like it that way because oh. if, um, like, say, the heater builds up carbon monoxide, mm -hmm. the draft will give me some oxygen. That sure. helps. Yes. I don't want it hermetically sealed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. It's good to have some contact with the outside world, if it, even if it's yeah. via draft. Yeah, and I don't trust the smoke detector. Yeah. It's supposed to beep if there's carbon monoxide, but it never has. Hmm. Yeah, you never know whether those things work or not until it's until it's too late. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> How's your health doing? Um, slowly improving. Good. Good. Fantastic. Well, it helped when I got on Medicare and was able to see a real doctor instead of the clinic. Mm. I have a doctor who actually discusses the test results with me instead of just, you know, trying to push me into getting a flu shot. Yeah, mm. exactly. I haven't had the flu since 1969. I don't think I'm going to get it. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes those things give you the flu. Yeah. Yeah, they make you... I had COVID twice, and all I had was a runny nose. Good. You must have a good immune system. Apparently. <laughs> Did you lose your sense of smell or taste? No. For a while, things tasted funny, but mm. that went away. I I had it. I lost my sense of smell and taste, but never my sense of humor or my sense of irony. So that's good. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. It's it's been freezing overnight. Sometimes below freezing, but I get to stay in, so it's okay. Good. Good. Do you have... I don't get sick. I just do you have, have a really bad back. But do people bring you food, and, like, how do you get your supplies and stuff? Well, some bring me food, and some take me to the store. Oh, that's and good. Yeah, I can... Um, you know, pick things out and put them in the cart, but I can't carry them from the car to the house. Sure. Mm. Well, it's good that you have help then. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to live in a small town. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I noticed in one of your videos, you said you were having some issues with your neighbors. Are they still uh, Are raucous? Well, the... Neighbors next door are squatters, mm -hmm. but the guy used to date a, my friend's daughter, so he thinks we're friends. <laughs> By proxy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he's a pretty good guy overall, but he is a convicted felon. Mm-hmm. Drugs. Mm. Drugs, yeah. Drug war casualty. 
Any any yeah. any good drugs or or are is it more like a fentanyl? Uh, I think he's kind of uh, given up on drugs because of fentanyl. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's Some nasty good. stuff. He doesn't seem to be on speed anymore. Oh, good. That's good. So he's not like outside in the, the uh, summertime or in the winter trying to clip the lawn with, with a, a nail file. No, but I think what what the felony was, he committed burglary trying to, you know, get enough money to buy drugs. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's been a couple years. Sure. Yeah. That... Anyway. Anyway. Uh, um, the biggest problem I had was with people who were visiting the neighbor's parking in my driveway uh, which is a big deal it's a huge driveway it's mm -hmm. sideways mm -hmm. but they'd pull right up to my gate mm -hmm. like I'm supposed to walk around their car to <sighs> get in and out of my yard yeah it's a little rude yeah they have no common sense and no common courtesy it's it's lacking in some areas these days. Well, yeah, I shouldn't have to tell them not to block my gate. Exactly. Yeah. That's just common sense. They could at least ask you if it's okay. Well, there are a few that still park in my driveway, but now they leave, you know, they park away from my gate. Mm -hmm. It's like it's inconvenient for them to walk three or four feet farther yeah exactly <laughs> what, are you, what are you gonna do well i put up three signs and once in a while i go out and yell at them uh, <laughs> i'll say i'm calling the tow truck to no avail that usually works oh good <laughs> well I'd, first of all, Tessa, I would really like to thank you for for agreeing to sit down and, and have a chat with us tonight. Um, I really appreciate that. I feel honored that you agreed to do so. And I would love to... Are you good for going a couple of hours? Sure. Okay. Um, this, this Friday, I'm going to do two hours oh, cool. at like 9 o'clock at night with Solaris. Blue Raven. Oh, nice. So not, this uh, is a little easier. Yeah, yeah. I've not heard her show, but I've heard things about it. So would you suggest it? Yeah. Listening to it, is it a good good show? Well, uh, I think so. Yeah. Cool. Well, that says something. She talks really fast. Oh. <laughs> I've gotten to where I can understand her. <laughs> <laughs> it took some acclimating. Yeah. Um, she's worse than Ben Shapiro. Oh, God. oh wow. Holy moly. That's, yeah, that's, a, that's fast. I don't like Ben Shapiro, so. Yeah. I, I, I agree with some things that he says, but I'm not a big fan of how he says it. Yeah, he seems to have an ego problem. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yes. 
if you disagree with him on anything, oh, you're horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Do you do you spend much time taking in any kind of news or any kind of mainstream media? Well, sometimes by accident, <laughs> I end up listening to uh, one of them because when on YouTube, when a video ends, they'll just on my phone, mm-hmm. it'll roll over to whatever they think I want to hear. Yeah. Gotcha. Or whatever they think. And, I I do try to get the weather reports from a variety of stations. That's that's a pretty safe this, bet. The weather report. Yeah. Yeah, weather is kind of important on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I am a I am a believer that things. All things happen for a reason, whether it be a big sort of cosmic reason or something that leads to another chain of events that causes some maybe more important uh, thing to happen or series of events to happen. Uh, I know a lot of people talk to you about, of course, your marriage to Philip K. Dick, and I would love to, to get into that also. But I think because of that uh, meeting that you had, and that's basically, I, I think, around 10 years that you spent uh, associating with him, whether it be married or after you were married. What about your life before that? What do you think maybe set the stage for that sort of crossing of paths to happen? Because you had, you've had a very interesting life, right? Uh, you could call it that. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a lot of pretty crazy experiences. Yeah, I did. And um, our meeting seemed accidental at the time, but I really wonder. I still thought we'd been set up. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on and I, I think it over... Yeah, maybe we were. Hmm. Well, at least maybe the 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 series of events in your life left you in a state of mind where something like that could happen and you could appreciate it or you was you were able to meet it head on. Well, I don't know, but as soon as I saw him, I just knew he was the one. Hmm. At the time, he was breaking up with our mutual friend, Ginger. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Ginger was about Phil's age. I I was much younger. Mm -hmm. But Ginger basically was a friend of my mother. Oh, wow. They They both used to drive school buses for a small private school. Wow. I did not know that. Anyway, Phil didn't really notice me till I started flirting with him. Hmm. That'll do it. Yeah, but then he was pouring drinks, Dan, Jack Daniels and Coke. Mm-hmm. And I had told him to make mine weak because I'm not much of a drinker. Mm-hmm. 
I wasn't really old enough. I was only 18. Mm -hmm. uh, he made it too strong. <laughs> then he got mad when I poured it out on the lawn. I bet. Wasting, wasting good Jack Daniels. <laughs> Is there such a thing? Ugh. I don't like Jack Daniels. Yeah, I don't if I want to drink, uh, which is rare, I'll get Seagram's VO. Oh, and since I don't, yeah, since I don't drink often, I can afford it. Right, that makes sense. So I, I'm curious about your history with writing. Had you? ever endeavored into doing any type of writing as a a younger person was that ever like were you a journaler or did you did you ever uh kind of delve into any types of short stories oh yeah i um i once wrote a story for my baby sister oh wow about a Little red car that wanted to win a race. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, and then uh, I started seriously writing articles. Um, well, I thought I might become a journalist. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, interpret scientific papers so, you know, ordinary people could understand them. <laughs> It seems like, I'm sorry, go ahead. They're written so that even scientists have trouble understanding. That's true. Out. Yeah. Well, it seems like you had kind of a tumultuous childhood and uh, a, a difficult time as you were growing up. Do you feel like the, that the writing helped you to kind of unpack some of that stuff that was going on in your life? Um, not at first, but as I um, became an adult and, and took some courses in college, yeah, I was able to work some things out in journals mm -hmm. and eventually in fiction. But, um, see, my school teachers had told my mother what a good writer I was, and she should encourage that. Mm -hmm. So she went to the library and checked out a dozen books on writing and expected me to read them in two weeks. Because <laughs> that's how long you can keep a library book. Right. <laughs> she did actually get me a subscription to the writer's digest nice cool that's great yeah, see, i didn't have an allowance i didn't get paid for doing chores mm -hmm. and she wouldn't let me do chores for the neighbors because something terrible might happen to me mm. she was really weird like, when i was 17 she wouldn't let me get a job because I might have to cross a busy street to get to work. Mm -hmm. Overprotective. I didn't drive. She wouldn't allow me to get any driver training. Mm -hmm. 
Did she? Which I mean, did that come from some series of bad experiences from her past? Why? Why do you think she was so overprotective? I I consider it more being imprisoned than protected. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she was insane mm-hmm. and alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, you're also a very beautiful woman, and so she probably on some level thought that. Uh, imprisoning you was a way of protecting your chastity or protecting you from the outside world. Rapunzel. Up to a point, but when I was 16, she was actually yelling at me for not having sex. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, One time some, uh, Friends of my stepsister were staying at at our house. Uh-huh. One of them was a really good-looking boy, and she she was yelling at me that I turned him off. What? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say this, but I was thinking, Mom, he's gay. <laughs> Couldn't turn him on if I tried. <laughs> She often picked out gay men for me. Interesting. Wow. What a her her picker must be off. And and where did she grow up? Um, mostly Culver City. Oh yeah. So was yeah, I she... was born there. We lived there till I was eleven. Did did she so not... was she working in the business at all, or that it, that was just where no. she happened to be? No, that's where she grew up. And for a couple of years, three years, I think, we were living in the house where she grew up. Wow. And my dad had uh, broken his back. And so while he was recovering, he couldn't work because mm-hmm. he'd been doing heavy physical labor. Mm hmm. And uh, so we moved into that house, which my grandparents still owned. Mm. Well, he was recovering. And so did they stay together throughout your childhood? Oh, yeah. Dad always loved her. I don't know why, Mm. but he was just... I guess the best word is besotted. <laughs> no matter how badly she treated him, he just loved her. Hmm. So growing up, did you have any sort of anomalous or unexplained experiences? Oh, tons. Yeah? I mean, like paranormal experiences or? Oh, yeah. And and some really... Uh, Weird things that probably had something to do with MK Ultra. Mm. Do tell. From a very early childhood, probably around two years old, I actually had an angel sitting behind my shoulder talking to me. Like all the time? Uh, not all the time, mm-hmm. but it, it was. Most of it was just ordinary stuff, like 
I'd hear my dad's car in the driveway, and instead of me thinking I'd better get off dad's chair, mm-hmm. <laughs> the angel would tell me, your daddy's home, you better get off his chair. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, common sense advice. Was this sort of like a, a, a disembodied voice coming from behind you, or do, could you turn around and actually see some entity there? Didn't I don't remember seeing him, but I kind of imagined or pictured what he looked like mm-hmm. until uh, when we moved to my grandparents' house. Um, he came and and I saw him face to face, and he told me, uh, "You're eight years old now. If 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 you have a an angel talking to you, people will think you're crazy." So I have to go away. Um, Interesting. I mean, were you, was it like you were telling anybody about your your conversations with the angel? No, I had learned not to. Sure. But my my older brother and I both experienced very frightening hauntings. In in a particular place, or or sort of wherever you guys lived. Usually in the bedroom, but both houses, the first one and then my grandparents' house. Hmm. It was worse at my grandparents' house. I, I kind of think maybe my mother's demons thought they had a claim on her children. Hmm. I've heard uh, Father Malachi Martin talking oh, about yeah. that with Art Bell. Mm-hmm. So you have to stand up and tell them, no, you don't have a claim on me. Which is a lot for a kid to do. Yeah, well, I didn't learn that till I was an adult listening mm. to Art Bell. Oh, right. Wow. So did yeah. did any member of your family have any uh, association with the military? Not really. The only thing I can think of is dad... Um, made some of the parts for a Gemini capsule. Wow! One of the first, you know, one of the first Gemini capsules. And he couldn't talk about it. You know, he had to have security clearance and was sworn to silence. Mm-hmm. But I remember going to a family picnic at his work where they showed a mock-up of the capsule letting us know they had worked on it. But one thing he did talk about without actually saying it was the space capsule was um, making hinges that would work Mm. because the engineers couldn't figure it out. And he was a sheet metal worker, so he said, okay, I'll, I'll make the hinges that you designed and we'll see if they work, and if not, we'll fix them so they do. Mm-hmm. And he did. Hmm. And he talked about that without ever saying it was the space capsule, but that's what it had to be. Sure. Wow. Well, what gave you the impression, you said something earlier about MK Ultra. what gave you the impression that, some of your experiences had to do with that? Well, there was this um, 
longitudinal experiment on school children mm-hmm. by Stanley Milgram. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right name. Yep. The one who did the prison experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Supposedly it was about the relationship between self-esteem and um, leadership. I thought I'd imagined the whole thing, but my older brother eventually, all about 10 years ago, just brought it up in conversation. And he, he remembered things like throwing a beanbag and taking a personality inventory. Mm-hmm. I call it the crazy test. The <laughs> Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, mm-hmm. MMPI. Yep. Oh, years later, as an adult, I took the MMPI to help a fellow student with his master's thesis in psychology. Mm-hmm. And I knew I'd taken that test before. Couldn't be sure when or where, but it had to be during that study at my grammar school. And the weird thing about it was, you know, they're supposed to get parents' permission to study their children. Mm-hmm. My parents never knew about it. They were never asked. Hmm. But I remembered them doing what had to be Remote viewings before it was called that. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Philip Zimbardo did the the Stanford prison experiment. Stanley Milgram was the psychologist who did the experiment uh, with people. when they were in separate rooms to see if they would electric shock someone. Oh, well, that's even more horrible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It yes. Was... Some of their test subjects went insane. Mm-hmm. Huh. From the trauma. Yeah. It, it, it had really, really long-term effects on a lot of people who were involved in both experiments, both Stanford Prison Experiment and uh, the the social social psychological experiments that he did. It's the obedience to authority uh, experiment. Uh-huh. Oh well, I got kicked out of the study because I was too disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good for you. You passed. <laughs> yeah, at one point this woman was yelling at me that I was giving the wrong answers on purpose. And I was. <laughs> <laughs> they were on to you. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I would imagine at that point that, that uh, Los Angeles was a hotbed of uh, lots of different MK Ultra cells and experiments, especially in the school system. Yep. Well, there were, you know, there was all kinds of weirdness. There was this um, push to get rid of polio, mm-hmm. so all of us, all of us, had to have a polio shot every year. Mm-hmm. Well, my grandmother took 
my brothers and me to a doctor, a private doctor for our shots. Mm -hmm. And mom was furious at the waste of money. When wow. the school would give the school was giving the shots for free. Interesting. Well, mom was weird that way. She thought my grandmother should just give her money so she could spend it on herself. What what was the Any, what was the common thing that she wanted to spend her money on? Um, um alcohol, cigarettes, mm. going out. Vices. Yeah, pretty much. She was a party girl. She was good looking. Mm. That's where you got it. <laughs> Your good looks. Well, she always insisted I looked more like my dad's mother. But anyway, well, that, that, so we got our first shot right before first grade. Mm-hmm. In second grade, half of my class wasn't there. Wow. The, sc the school had a bad batch of the vaccine and they got polio. Oh. Holy crap. That's awful. Yeah. yeah, some died, some were paralyzed. Jeez Louise. Yeah. I wonder how your mother well, reacted to that because your grandmother took you to a private doctor. She was, she was very active in the PTA. Mm. So she started forging our um, vaccination records. Oh, wow. Your grandmother did or your mother? My mother. Wow. <laughs> she would let us take the sugar cube, but not the shot. Mm. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, she just didn't trust it after that. Yeah, I, understandably. I don't blame her. Jeez Louise. That's wild. So were you educated primarily in Lo in the Los Angeles area? That you did you stay oh, there? Um uh, through the fifth grade, then we uh the Watts riot happened. Mm-hmm. In August of 65, and in September, we moved to Anaheim. Wow. Yeah. And the, and the, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was in Orange County for a while. And the strange experiences followed you there, like the paranormal experiences. They weren't as bad, but here and there, something weird would happen. Mm-hmm. Did it I would I would see someone walking through the house that I thought was my brother. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. It wasn't. It was just something ghostly. Hmm. How did you feel about that? I mean, did that were you open-minded to things like that to begin with or did that sort of well, put that them... didn't frighten me, but the house like where mom grew up, mm -hmm. we went back there once just, uh, my mom and her sister and I were, went there and they were just getting a few things out because uh, my grandfather had sold the house. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandparents had their own house a couple miles away. 
-hmm. Anyway, um, mom told me to go get some curtain rods that were in the pantry. And I absolutely could not go into that house. Hmm. I walked toward it and about six feet from the door, I, I turned around and said, I can't. Because of just but it's stupid that she went and got the curtain rods herself. Mm. Well, that pantry seemed to be a focus of ghostly activity, demonic even. Interesting. That's a strange place for something like that to be centered. I try not to believe in such things, but it was real to me. Yeah, it sounds like it. And what did your mom acknowledge that at all? Did she? Or did she just, no. she just dismissed no. it as your imagination or something? Exactly. Uh-huh. And things that really did happen, she'd tell us we imagined it because, um, well, for example, uh, my brother and I on different occasions asked, um, Guess mom was, mom and dad owned a record store and mom would be working there and we'd ask, uh, for example, is, is that guy going to come in again? Mm -hmm. She was meeting one of her boyfriends there. Uh-huh. Mm. So what guy? <laughs> you must have been imagining things. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. She's underestimating your powers of observation. How well how, she want dad to find out. Sure. But even when even when he knew she was cheating on him, it didn't change him. Hmm. Did uh was your brother older or younger than you? I had two older brothers and oh. a baby sister who was born when I was nine years old. Mm. Did did this activity that you you uh, categorize as demonic? Did, was that happening at the same time ever? Was there any overlap with the angelic experiences? The um, angel told me that uh, when we moved, he had to stay at the a previous house for a few weeks to stop those demons from following us. Interesting. But then when he did arrive at the house we moved into, there were demons he had to deal with there. Crazy. And I was not religious. I kind of knew about David and Goliath. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> the fun stories. That was about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And where? what is your stance on that now? How do you feel about religion and um, I call myself a Baptist because that's where I got dunked there's six, <laughs> there's six kinds of Baptist you never know what you're going to get in a Baptist church so I'm basically a non-denominational mm. Christian gotcha I didn't really believe in Jesus until just getting really bad what they call sleep seizures mm -hmm. and when they happened I experienced a figure jumping on me and physically attacking me 
And I finally, you know, I pray to God to get rid of it and it would go away, but eventually come back. But the last time I, I called on Jesus Christ to get rid of it and it hasn't come back. A lot of people say that, even in 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 encounters that they would classify as sort of extraterrestrial encounters, they call upon Christ or call upon God and uh, or start saying a psalm or a prayer or something, and and it stops. Very strange. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So did you? Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. All of this kind of prepared me to take Phil seriously when he started having visions. Mm -hmm. But a great part of what he was doing and what I've been doing too, although I did it on purpose, he was recovering suppressed memories. Mm. Suppressed memories. he had been uh, pre- pretty much driven out of San Rafael mm-hmm. up in Marin County in Northern California. Mm-hmm. They thought he was a big drug dealer, which is horse pucky. <laughs> but that's what they thought. You know, if you passed him a joint, he would smoke it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was Who about wouldn't? it. Who wouldn't? <laughs> Do you think they were just trying oh. to... They were just trying to defame him because they didn't like what he was doing, or? Well, he had this um, very innocent connection to Timothy Leary. Mm -hmm. And when Phil's troubles started was when Leary escaped from prison. Mm -hmm. Because they thought the two were connected. Yeah, well, Leary was at the bed in with John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Where they were singing "Give Peace a Chance," uh, yeah. and Paul Williams, the the journalist, was there, and he knew Phil and had his phone number, so he called Phil and um, Dr. Leary and John Lennon both told Phil they were fans of his work, and that cool. was the extent of it. Mm-hmm. But then, when Leary escaped from prison. Uh, they hadn't been spying on Phil during that time, probably, but they would have been looking at John Lennon's phone records. Sure. Go, oh, he got a phone call from the bed in. Mm-hmm. He must be helping Leary to to uh, uh, evade the law. <laughs> do you think you think Phil was already on their radar by that time, or do you think that that helped to put him on the radar? And then they discovered the kinds of stories that he was writing, and then that maybe a greater interest developed from that. He probably was sort of on the radar Mm -hmm. because he signed that petition in Ramparts magazine promising not to pay income taxes until we ended the war in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't pay, but, uh, like, there's a list somewhere on the Internet. He's one of the people who were forced to pay. They just took his car. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, he was sort of on their radar, but it got serious right after Larry escaped from prison. 
And there was this weird guy hanging around with Phil, didn't live in the same house, but would visit. And he claimed to belong to a an undercover organization so secret that the CIA didn't know about them. Interesting. And he did get Phil out of the house, called him and, and asked him to meet at a local coffee shop because it was really important. Mm -hmm. And on the way to the coffee shop, Phil's car broke down. Hmm. The next day, the mechanic told him it had been sabotaged. It was, so was this after the series of break-ins started happening? So this, this was the day of the big break-in. Oh, okay. Wow. With the one where they came it, in and, and exploded the file cabinet? Yeah, this guy, Hal, didn't want him in the house when that happened. Uh-huh. So that was all a distraction, and his car was supposed to break down so he couldn't, he would be delayed in getting back to his apartment. Well, it was a house, not oh, okay. an apartment. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, it was a weird break-in. They left valuables. They took his bank records and his manuscripts. Wow. And Those... his tax records. Interesting. They tossed all his food onto the kitchen floor out of the cupboards. You know, they emptied the boxes of cereal and pancake mix, and they emptied out the refrigerator onto the floor. But they left a, an expensive watch and some gold coins and some cash. Well... I mean, it sounds like they knew what the real treasure was, the manuscripts. Like, that to me, that's, you know, that that to me is probably the most valuable thing that would have been in his apartment. But, you know, it's easy to say that in hindsight. What, what, well, fortunately, Phil had sent a copy of the manuscript of Flow My Tears, the policeman said, to his divorce lawyer. Mm. Nancy had left him and filed for a divorce. And he didn't. He had sent the manuscript for Deus Erie to his co-author Roger Selasny. Mm -hmm. So those two novels survived. Good. But there was the third one that was in progress, and it did, didn't survive. Mm. So what were what was what did Phil suspect was behind that break-in, or did he have any? ideas about it he speculated about everything in the universe the irs <laughs> the cia the fbi um the dea um that was nixon's brand new agency drug enforcement yes. administration uh-huh or it might have been the russians or the chinese mm-hmm he was leaving all the options open. But what, what, yeah, but after he fled to Canada, he was a, a guest of honor at a science fiction convention. Oh, yeah. In Metz? Metz? No, Vancouver, British oh, Columbia. yeah, Metz was in Metz, France. Metz was 1977. Yeah, yeah. The house was 71. Gotcha. Yeah, so early 82, he was in Canada, 
And one of the memories he recovered was that he'd been kidnapped and drugged and interrogated. Wow. He, he had a headache and he was walking to the pharmacy to get some aspirin. Mm-hmm. And two men in black suits shoved him into the back of a limousine. And they drove around Vancouver, the streets of Vancouver, for he, he figured it must have been a couple hours. Hmm. But he couldn't quite remember what they had asked him or what he had said. Mm-hmm. And the next thing he knew, he was sitting on the floor of his apartment and he had just swallowed a whole bottle of sleeping pills. Wow. Jesus Christ. So he, he called for help and he said, if the, you know, this was rotary phones, you turn the mm-hmm. dial. Mm-hmm. He said if the last number had been anything but a one, he could not have completed the call. Mm-hmm. It sounds like he, yeah. had, he had plenty of reasons to be paranoid. And there he was, out of money, broke, uh, not a Canadian citizen, so their health care wouldn't cover him. Mm-hmm. The only place that would take him was a drug rehab center. Wow. Well, at least... Yeah, so there's a lot of truth in his novel, A Scanner Darkly. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. But he, he was not an addict... He was one of those annoying people who could smoke a cigarette and then not touch another one for a week. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I was kind of like that too with tobacco. So I can relate to that. Yeah. So the that first break-in, how long before you met him did that happen? I don't know that that was the first break-in. Oh, okay. But he had... It had small break-ins that were probably, you know, the there were a lot of young people hanging around because his brother-in-law, Michael, mm-hmm. who was much younger, was still living with Phil after Nancy left. Mm-hmm. His friends, and he figured they were pilfering a little cash or whatever. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that ransacking of his house. Yeah. I mean, they did unnecessary damage. Yeah, the the ransacking didn't seem like it was, you know, your normal sort of robbery. It seemed like it was, you know, definitely pointed at something, like it had a purpose. And it was punitive. Yeah, exactly. Did anything like that happen after you guys crossed paths or while you were married? Well, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. But in our department, the previous tenants were uh, three college girls that Phil knew because he had been sharing an apartment next door to them mm-hmm. with another uh, student, uh, Joel Stein. Anyway, one of them had kept a key, and she used to go into our apartment while we were not at home and just sit in a chair and maybe read a book or something. And we'd come home, and a book or a magazine would be out of place. It wasn't where we left it. 
But Phil figured that out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Made her give back the key, and then he complained to the landlady, you're supposed to change the locks when people move out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but we had this feeling of surveillance, and then uh, after we'd moved to an a actually an apartment across the street because I was about to give birth and the place where we were didn't allow children. So anyway, um, the apartment next door to us there came vacant and they didn't rent it out. They filled it with electronic equipment and a working telephone. I was inclined to believe that our landlord was spying on his wife mm. because it, it wasn't locked. So I went in and picked up the phone and I heard these two women talking. Wow. So yeah, I figured, oh, the landlord's spying on his wife. But Phil looked at all the electronic equipment and stuff and thought they were. Uh, spying on us mm-hmm. could be. Yeah, was it? It was around the time he started hearing this voice in his head telling him to die. Interesting. Maybe an early form of the voice of God technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or have you heard of Jerry Marzinski? Don't think so. He is a is a proper term. Is he a therapist? Or He's a, a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist, and he has done a lot of work with prisoners and prisoners who get diagnosed as schizophrenic. And he noticed that um, the treatment that these prisoners were getting, nobody ever really asked them what their voices were actually telling them, what they were actually saying to them. And he started asking them, just started asking handfuls of prisoners, like, so what are these things saying to you? And they were, he found that they were all basically saying different versions of the same thing. They were all very derogatory statements, um, talking down the person, trying to get them to doubt themselves, um, just very negative talk. And he came to the conclusion that these were actual objective entities that were sort of harvesting negative energy from these people. Um, and yeah, and, and the a place like a prison was a great place to do that because there was so much negative energy in the whole place. But he, so he thought that the voices people were hearing in their heads were actual entities, objective entities, and not some creation of the person's mind. But voice of God technology, that's an interesting, interesting take on it too. It was, was... reminds me of Harry Stack Sullivan. Phil had uh, read about Sullivan. He was a psychiatrist who happened to be schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. He would go around the wards thinking, uh, deliberately thinking bad thoughts about the paranoid patient. Mm-hmm. And the patient he was thinking about would walk up to him and repeat what he had only thought. Interesting. 
Wow. Like, how could you say such a thing about me? Wow. <laughs> yeah, like there's a wavelength that where thoughts can go between, maybe it's the same wavelength that people use for telepathy or for ESP. And like he was well, he too... Had the, yeah, he had the theory that these paranoid patients were picking up on something real that the yeah. rest of us didn't detect. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. Well, we send you many blessings, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your evening yes. and holiday season. Yes. It was great meeting yeah. you, Tessa. Let's see, it's too early for Merry Christmas, so happy <laughs> Thanksgiving. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. And I will uh, I will let you know when this episode goes live. We've got quite a few backed up in the queue, but so it might be a bit, but I'll let you know. I'll give you plenty of heads up when it comes out. Well, then we can promote it. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can arrange some other time to have the next conversation. Okay. All right, Tessa. Awesome. It's have a great evening and goodbye. All right. Farewell. Thank you. The one and only Tessa Dick. We usually have so many more buttons to push. I know. We only it's had great. one button. It was very streamly, streamly. Very streamly. Streamly, streamlined. Yes. We just are having nude, audio. by the way. <laughs> That's why we're not Psychically on camera. Psychically nude. That's why we're not on camera, because yeah. we're nude. Mm-hmm. We're skinny podcasting. <laughs> Skinny casting. It's a new trend. You, yeah, you, 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 do, you don't press. Yeah. The timing. It's all about timing, dear. Oh, Lord. Uh, that was awesome. Yeah. It was wonderful chatting yeah. with her. I felt yeah. like we were in her living room with the smell of coffee on the pot. I, I, I'm glad that we tried to kind of veer away from just focusing on Phil because I'm really more interested. And I, I say that, you know, with all due respect to Phil, but I, I really wanted to know more about her and her life and her experiences. And, you know, she's a California girl. So in many regards, I consider us kindred spirits. And it was just really wonderful to hear her take on, uh, you know, the time she grew up in California. And I just I'm I'm fascinated by that period of uh, that just that whole area era in that area. And, you know, what was going on, what experiments were were uh, being um, executed on people, <laughs> and it seems like there it was a hotbed. Hmm. Yes, uh, I'm interested in both. I am interested in her and her past for sure, um, but I'm also interested in where her reality and Philip K. Dick's reality overlaps. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel too bad about that because she has tons of books about Philip K. Dick. So I think. On some level, she obviously wants to talk about Philip K. Dick. Uh, but yes, I don't want that to be the only um, conversation that we have because I'd like to know more about Tessa and, and where she came from. That's kind of why, why I started with that question, um, hoping that that would be the main foundation of 
further conversations about where her and Philip K. Dick's paths crossed. Yeah, I've always wanted to write a book about writers because I'm a writer and I am interested in writers' process. And that was something I neglected to ask her is what his process was for writing. Did he do uh, specific rituals? Like, you know, there I have asked several writers or children of famous writers, you know, how did your dad write? And for example, Amy Wallace, whose father was Irving Wallace, you know, he grew up in a period where there was, you know, cocktail hour at five. And so, you know, when he woke up in the morning, it was, he was basically taking methamphetamines all day. So he would get up very early and start his day with methamphetamines, drink coffee all day long and write, and then come five o'clock, switch to martinis and, you know, then it's dinner and dinner parties or, you know, dinner and out dancing with your wife. So there's this almost, you know, this very romantic view of the professional writer and the life that they're leading and living and Phil Phil's work is so powerful <laughs> that I can only imagine what it may have been like to be in that circumstance with him and you know how did he navigate that did he write by himself and then give her pages did she write by herself and then give him pages like how did they how did they negotiate uh, those things when they were working on projects together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask more about what that, how that manifested as far as their process of, Sorry. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> as far as the process of them writing something together, mm -hmm. I think she had a lot to do with the editorial process and um, some of the aspects of that around the writing. But I think she also contributed to the writing too. Sure. I mean, I, have just worked on a project with our son and it's very much his project, but part of the editorial process is cleaning up the work and offering suggestions and, and kind of doing some degree of guidance in that, you know, if things don't make sense, you know, trying to, to kind of, flesh out ideas or tease out ideas. So I'm sure that there was some degree of that uh, from both sides, mm -hmm. like like Phil reading her work and, you know, the, the collaboration that they experienced together. And I just, you know, I have so much empathy for people who grieve and who have been through uh, painful losses and, you know, I, I just wonder how how life is in isolation because she enjoys living on her own. But there's a side of me that kind of wishes that she lived closer physically and had more of a physical relationship with her son and was able to kind of see him more. 
uh, I know it's probably, it, it would be insane to live in the shadow of such a prolific writer. Uh, and that may be very difficult, as she said, that he doesn't want to go out into the world or he doesn't go out into the world as Philip K. Dick's son. So I think it's probably complicated. Absolutely. As it always is, anything in reality is complicated and it's just ironic, but yet kind of goes along with a stereotype of the person who exists before their time, um, meaning that they're dealing in things, talking about things, creating things that um, maybe aren't widely accepted or widely valued in the greater context of the society or the culture that they are uh, steeped in. Mm -hmm. So I think Philip is a perfect example of that. Um, I mean, if you just look at his writings, he talks about so many things that are spot on Mm -hmm. as to what is happening right now. Um, And yet the barely anybody, at least on a mainstream level is making that sort of connection that he was on to a lot of this stuff Mm -hmm. and that maybe a lot could have been learned by reading his books. Uh, But you know, that's the thing about science fiction. It peaks, it's allowed to peak into the future or, or a version of the future, but it's not, I mean, I think that's changing maybe with things like Dark Mirror or Black Mirror. I don't know why I always want to call it Dark Mirror. I'm mixing it with Dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's never, I, I don't think it's seen enough as a maybe a cautionary tale of things that we should be avoiding. I think now we're so steeped in media, we look at that and basically it it takes on almost a different function of maybe potentially because there's so much of that from coming from so many different angles that it we're almost numb to it. So we see so much of that stuff and a lot of it is bullshit, like movies that The Rock is in and stuff like that that may talk about some similar things that Phil talked about, but because it gets all lumped into one mushy category, it's all written off as just like, yeah, you know, who knows? Maybe that could happen. Maybe it couldn't. And when things like that do happen, people are so like, ah, you know, it doesn't surprise me. You know, it's like it breeds a cynicism that is a disconnection between, you know, being able to to uh, create something that is really of a genius stature at the time. And it just being going completely under the radar. And then later it gets picked up and turned into movies that take these stories and water them down and dilute them into something that's sort of recognizable, kind of have a little bit of the flavor of what the original stories had. But, you know, it's kind of and maybe that's why it didn't because that's that's most people's uh, exposure to Philip K. Dick's work is his is the movies is the bad adaptations of well, his stuff. I think that he was lauded as a genius when he was alive. You think so? The, he was. I was reading the his uh, some of the the writing about him and people that were in uh, his world, like Heinlein, gave him money and helped him, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of a lot of people attempting to prop him up in the science fiction community, but also I think the balance is that you have 
you know, these nefarious bad actors that are in these agencies that are doing everything they possibly can to thwart your efforts and to drive you insane. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain people in certain uh, points in their life where they are more valuable dead than they are alive. And I think it was very clear in his circumstance that he was way more valuable dead because he had done all of this writing and probably made some bad business decisions, some, you know, bad deals that didn't protect him or didn't protect his legacy. Because in the time, if you don't have the, the understanding of what you're doing, you're just doing the work. You're not really looking at it as a legacy brand. You know, you don't have um, agents around you like you do now that are like, creating a brand identity for you before you even have any fucking content. (laughs) So I think in his circumstance, and there's, there's so many great writers and artists and musicians that fall in this category that they get kind of in this controlled situation. And there's all these people whispering bad advice in their ears and it ends up, that they make other people wealthy and they don't uh, uh, enjoy the spoils of their their labor. And so it seems like he fell into that circumstance in that situation. And if you are being targeted, as we have uh, ex- examined and explored with someone like Isaac Cappy, now I would never say Isaac Cappy was on the same level of genius as uh, Phil Dick is, um, but he's here's someone who had some clearly some outside forces that were fucking with him. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at that and you say, okay, here's one guy who was, you know, B, C, D grade actor who was getting fucked with because he's trying to expose something. And here's someone who's on the genius spectrum who is getting fucked with (laughs) like that just shows you the capacity that these, these nefarious predators have to ruin someone's life. Yeah. And, you know, I think you can look at Tessa now and the reason that Tessa is allowed to live is because she doesn't offer a threat in many regards. She's a fragile being in many regards and so no one looks at it's like they've already got what they needed out of him so they're they've kind of left her alone in many um you know they may shut down a video or she may have have shoddy internet but she's allowed to live Mm -hmm. sure um but sort of in an age that I i don't know I want to say that it's forgotten Phil and his work, but it's just, it's uh, taken out of context, I think, is why it doesn't seem as important. And now it's a genre all in and of itself, yeah. you know. I think one of the differences, and, I, and this is coming from somebody who doesn't really know much about the science fiction world as far as the writers and their connections to their works or anything like that, but it seems like from what I perceive from my very limited point of view, that the, what differs between Phil and his work and maybe other science fiction writers and their work is that he, I mean, a lot of it is autobiographical. He's talking about 
experiences that he's had that have been otherworldly or have really made him suspect that there's a lot more to reality than uh, meets the eye in a spiritual way, in a surveillance state way, in a technological way. Uh, whereas many, I see many of these other science fiction writers, and again, I really am speaking from a place of ignorance, but only just from a cursory observation, are just more living and, and telling stories out of speculation, like flights of fancy, like, hmm, I can take this idea and keep following the thread and write a story about where I think this seed after I plant it might, what it might grow into. It's more like a, a thought experiment. But what Phil was writing from was from experiences that he's had and then all the places that that took him mentally, physically, spiritually, and all of that. So I think that carries, that that makes his work, that gives his work more weight than a lot of other science fiction writers. Yeah, I don't agree. I mean, I, I have read uh, his work. I've read Aldous Huxley. I've read um, Arthur C. Clarke. I've read, you know, countless um, science fiction writers, and I would say they are actually doing the same thing that Dick did. I think he has had a, a renaissance. I think there's a lot of science fiction writers who are having renaissances, and they now we're at this age where people are looking at the, the work not as science fiction, but as more of a documentary. What, what I have found interesting recently is that George Orwell, for example, who has been a highly lauded artist for and writer for decades, uh, now there's some kind of tell-all book that's being released about him that says he was a misogynist and he... Um, didn't like gay people and, and he was a homophobe and and basically trying to malign his character and I think the reason is again it's it's bad publicity it's people coming in and saying oh all these people have been comparing what's going on right now with 1984 so what do we have to do we have to destroy Orwell we have to destroy his character yeah sure but what I'm trying to say with that was was George Orwell uh, writing books from based on experiences that he'd had with visions of the future or something like that or feeling like he was bifurcated between two timelines and he was simultaneously living in modern day uh, California but also at the same time a certain era of Rome like I don't see any of these writers talking about experiences like that. That's what I'm talking about. Like Phil was writing from something that he'd experienced and that right. set him off on these different paths. But these guys, other guys, it seems like, and I'm speaking from ignorance, were just conducting thought experience, experiments and writing about those. Like, hmm, I could see if technology or the world keeps going the way that it is, that it could possibly end up like this, you know, and that's where 90, 1984 comes from. Right. I, I don't know. I see it differently. I think that they were actually having their own versions of these experiences. Yep. And it's, it's clear if you read work about them that – there is a prophetic nature to their writing and they are saying 
they're basically speaking from the time that they're in and saying, this is where we are at right now. If we continue on this road, this is where we will go based on their own prophecies, based on their own visions. So I think in order to do that type of writing, you have to be in more than one place. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily think so, but it's okay. It's okay. I know that it's okay. It's totally okay. Um, I, I just don't think that you see what I'm trying to... I totally do. Okay. I totally do. I, just, I got it. And I, I, I don't know about the bio of any of these guys. Maybe they had religious experiences where they see hallucinations and feel like they're... I, I don't remember hearing anything about that, but That's I'm what Doors of Perception is about. Is yeah, about. it's about a drug experience. He's talking about a, him taking... Uh, um, what's it called? Starts with an M. Mescaline. Mescaline, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely autobiographical. That's, yeah. again, a different thing. He's not writing a science fiction story from that. He's writing about the experience itself. But that's not what I'm talking about. Anyway, it right. doesn't matter. And there's right. no need to get lost in this. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I just don't agree with your okay. perspective. Cool. But I do, I do understand what you're saying. I think it's possible that uh, if you dig into some of these other people's work, you may, your perspective may change very well very well may for sure it's kind of like looking into mary shelley's writing or uh lord byron's writing like these people were taking a shit ton of opium and tripping out and having these wild experiences and then writing about them that's where frankenstein was birthed and and so i think as a writer i can understand how there is a direct uh, a a kind of channeling experience that's happening with the work, and I think that all of these people, unless you're talking, you know, we could have this conversation for hours. I think it it depends on who the writer is and the type of writer that. I don't think Chicken Soup for the Soul dude is having a religious experience and writing about He's, it. He, what, we saw a documentary where he was talking about doing ayahuasca. Yeah, I yeah. Mean. chicken books, chicken books for the soup. Um, don't there's no chicken soup for the soul uh, for the ayahuasca drinker <laughs> that I know of. Um, <laughs> there may be, but many of, and I'm not trying to belabor this point, but many of Phil's experiences weren't drug induced. Like there was the thing with his tooth and the drugs there, but. Yeah. Generally, it was just psychotic breaks, like just like psychological trauma right. that he was going yeah. through. There were like, a lot of drug related things. Like he was taking amphetamines. Like there was a lot of drugs. He was he was involved. given he was taking amphetamines because he got prescribed for his depression for a short time, and then he went off of amphetamines. That sticks. And Tessa has talked in interviews yeah. about like people think that he was this, but. Yeah. He, she goes on and on about how there wasn't that much drugs in, yeah. in his life. She said tonight, yeah. if he, like if he passed a joint, joint yeah, he'd yeah. smoke it. Yeah, sure. Anyway, yeah. No. yeah. Anyway, yeah, we'll get lost in the weeds. But I can take I can take MDMA once and still be able to access that place in my brain. I cannot. So, so. I I think that's that's the possibility. Is that I'm not saying. I'm not saying I'm not driving a flag into any point. I'm just saying I'm open to other possibilities that that 
there were other layers of reality that were happening for myriad writers. And that's what makes their work so good and stand the test of time. Dave Barry, I think maybe. <laughs> Irma Bombeck. I love Irma Bombeck. She, <laughs> I love her. I really did. Judy Bloom. I was, that was. Those were my people's. Your comfort food. Jack, Jack London. Like I, you know, look around us. How many books are in this room? I love books. I love writers. Even the weird ones. Even the <laughs> self-help, non-committal meditation books. That, there's some squishy books in there. But, there are. But that's that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. There are. That's true. I'm open. I I like to have a meteorite, meteorite esque dense book collection. Like I, I'd rather have ten intensely fucking great. Then books. let's get rid of the Idiot's Guide to Law, to Ethics. <laughs> oh, that just, too. Just get off the the terminology. <laughs> just take the title away from it. It's just a basic breakdown of of ethics. I want that. I want the easy. I want an easy primer for ethics. The McDonald's of ethics. Okay, yeah, we're not going to start nitpicking books here because I'll pull off some real stinkers. You're just a book slut, really. How dare you? You're right. <laughs> I am. I love me a good book. I got a whole gaggle of McSweeney's today, and I am fat sitting on twenties. All right. All right. Speaking of <laughs> books, you've got school books to get into, and I've yeah. got a podcast to edit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for listening. I'm sorry there wasn't video this time. We just, I don't know. When it's when the other person is on the phone, I think it's kind of silly just to have us looking around a room, not really talking to somebody visually. Yeah. I don't feel like you need to see us that much. Yeah. Maybe in reaction to somebody else who's also, you can see their reactions yeah. and so forth. That seems like it makes more sense. Well, and it gave me the opportunity to... Pick do, your nose. Why? No, do some internet <laughs> searching so I could seem smart to Tessa and, and give her answers. That's ideally what should come before the interview. How dare you? Because <laughs> it took you out of the present a little bit it there didn't. for a little bit. It didn't. When, as she was speaking, I was looking stuff up so that I could speak to what she was saying. It mm -hmm. actually didn't. Okay. I was right there. I was riding the Tessa wave, and it was freaking awesome. Can the, you not check your email? While, can only, you wait till we're off? The only reason that I really wanted... Uh, and I and I'm being selfish. The only reason I wanted video is I wanted to roll with Torah. I was hoping that we could hang with Torah. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> Hopefully, you enjoyed this as much as we did. Um, Tessa will definitely be on again for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, there's it's it's you know what I'm going to say by now. There's mm -hmm. great stuff coming your way. Um, just stay tuned. Keep your ears to the ground. But keep reaching for the stars. Yes. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you would like to get a hold of us. That's the third time you said that. What do you? Because I keep getting distracted. What are you doing? There's That's the only Tessa book there is right there. Oh. It yes. says there's 110. Yeah. Anyway. 
<laughs> can we? Yes. Okay. Focus All on right. well, we're what's doing. right in front of us. Sure. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of us to suggest guests or whatever, stop it. <laughs> you can get a hold of us at the Melt Podcast at protonmail.com. Or you can uh, reach out to me at hunter-muse at protonmail.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> they really we'll feel, you, it's, you know what, it's Thanksgiving week, so that's why we're thanking you so much. Yes. For listening. We love you. We do. Although this you. will come out probably in March, so <laughs> seriously. All well, right. maybe we can, we can push her ahead in the queue. Possibly. See, there's one right there. All right. All right, guys. Love you. Much love. Farewell. Yeah.